Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Well, hey, Ben, we are talking about Ammon. Yeah, we're finally to Ammon here. We've got all of this build up. We kind of closed out the story of Alma, so to speak. And now we're transitioning into Ammon and his brethren. And uh, this is sort of a parallel narrative that's going on uh, to what Alma does. And there's a few things that uh, I had to really try to fit together here because I couldn't figure out when I first started here where in the story of Alma, Alma is when he meets Ammon and his brethren. And it says here in the verse that he's journeying from the land of Gideon southward away to the land of Manti. And you initially, my thought was to go back to Alma chapter seven and say, oh, or the beginning of chapter eight, actually, after he leaves Gideon and to say, oh, this is when he meets them. But it doesn't say he went to Manti. And the years don't really match up for this to be the case because this is 14 years later. So anyway, I think just to fit this chronologically, I think this really is chronologically after Ammonihah that he meets up with Ammon and his brothers. I don't know if you've looked at this at all or anything, and I don't know what difference it really makes, but it was an, it was of interest to me as I started reading it. Yeah, I've thought about actually going through and documenting and trying to find the clues to see what times were running concurrent and where Alma was versus where they were at. And I've never done that. So <laughs> the, the the clues are a little tenuous to, to figure that out. They might be there, somebody that would be able to piece it together a little more. But as I, I went through it, I, I questioned whether it was really after Ammonihah that they met. And then when I went back and started looking at some stuff, I, I did kind of come to the conclusion, okay, this really is, their meeting is in chronologically after Ammonihah. So uh, I believe that's the case. But uh, in any case, this is a pretty iconic moment here in the Book of Mormon, where you have Alma and and the sons of Mosiah meeting back up after 14 years being apart. And a lot has happened, right? Like Alma wasn't even chief judge when they left. They still had a king when the sons of Mosiah left. And now Alma has gone through this whole thing from becoming chief judge to preaching to his whole Ammonihah deal and then meeting up with them. And Ammon, we're about to learn their whole story. They've gone through quite a bit as well. So this moment is pretty interesting here. You know, I, I love this idea that they come across each other and and they've gone through all these trials and there's always that little wonder in the back of their mind, right? Did they do they still do we still share this identity? right? Do we still share this identity that we once had uh, a long time ago? And then they find out they do, and it's this great moment of rejoicing for them. And that's interesting. I've had moments like that before. And then sometimes you have moments that are the opposite of that. You know, you come across 
someone you knew a long time before, maybe you were really good friends at one point and you come across and you find out that there isn't quite a shared identity. It could be religious or otherwise, but there isn't quite that shared identity. You've become different people in the sense that, so there's not that connection anymore. But here they find that they have that and uh, it's a moment of, of great joy for them. I really found in my own life that those friends that I have that at a moment's notice, you can share aspects of your discipleship with. That changes everything. And I've been in times in my life where I haven't had those kinds of friends. And then I have. And and the difference is absolutely remarkable. So I really see here in verse two, when they're talking and saying, yeah, they were together back in the day when they were rambunctious and they were going about doing all of these things against the church, but that when they came together, what added more to their joy, they were still brethren in the Lord. And that really is a very sweet union to be able to have that kind of friendship rooted in the gospel that way because of those identities and because of the camaraderie and just the feelings of peace that come with that. And I love that in verse three that they had all given themselves to prayer and fasting and that this becomes a key to how Mormon sees, at least because Mormon's the one who's narrating all this, and this becomes a key to how Mormon sees they have the spirit of prophecy, the spirit of revelation, and in how they had power. So I think it's interesting that Mormon pulls that out, that fasting and prayer give those types of spiritual blessings of of prophecy and of revelation and of power and authority, that when we participate in those meaningful actions and those meaningful contemplative moments, for me personally, I'm starting to lose a lot of my, what I call my transactionalism, I mean, kind of my if and then. And I start to see, I'm starting to see a lot more in the Book of Mormon, things that are more descriptive versus more proscriptive. And so when I read verse three now, I still sometimes talk about it in my transactional way of being prescriptive as, you know, if you do this and this happens and you can expect that. But now I'm starting to see it more in, in a more of a descriptive way that through the method of contemplation and of fasting and of meditating and praying, because I very much see meditation as a, a type of prayer. And that's how they had become in tune to the light of Christ within themselves. That's how they become in tune with the spirit, possibly outside of themselves. And that they had taught the word of God for so long that it had brought so much success in bringing peace to what the Nephites considered were their worst enemies because they had been enemies for so long. We're talking about centuries worth of centuries of narratives here coming down to a point where Ammon and his brethren were literally going against their entire cultural training, their entire identity as Nephites to go out to the Lamanites because they had this perception of the, the Lamanites and maybe rightfully so that in verse 14, that they were a wild and hardened and a ferocious people, a people who delighted in murdering the Nephites and robbing and plundering them. And their hearts were set upon riches and upon gold and silver and precious stones. And they sought to obtain these things by murdering and plundering that they might not labor with them for their own hands. And they were a very indolent people who, and many of them did worship idols and the curse of God had fallen upon them because of the traditions of their fathers. Nevertheless, the promises of the Lord were extended unto them on the conditions of repentance. So this is a very transactional way to write this, but what it comes down to, comes down to it, you start to see that 
more this and again this is mormon narrating this and i really want to find out at what point in mormon's life he's writing this is it earlier on in his life when he's actually fighting the lamanites himself when he is maybe young and when he is fiery and maybe fed up with the lamanites in his own day and age what record is mormon pulling from where he's narrating this is he possibly reading some of his own angst into the record of who and what the lamanites are because once we start to see who the Lamanites are, I don't see much of this coming back into the narrative once we start really describing who the Lamanites are. Yeah, they didn't like the Nephites. Yeah, the missionaries were persecuted. Yes, they were beaten and scourged. But this whole wild and hardened and ferocious who delighted in murdering the Nephites, well, none of, the, none of them got murdered. No, the Lord did save them. They were beaten. They were persecuted, sure. And they had different identities. And both sides had really entrenched narratives about the other that had really uh, caused a lot of division through over time. But I'm, I'm wondering what the actual evidence of once we get into who and what the people were, whether or not it really supports their view of the Lamanites. And so I, I think that's going to be an interesting thing to talk about and find out. Well, and I think even Mormon's narrative here supports a descriptive view. You know, he's talking about what the cultural views of the time were, you know, like this is their perception. And, and that's what we get out of Alma 26, right? Which is an interesting context after you've read all this, then to get Alma 26, because Ammon gives the context of the culture of the Nephites that opposed and ridiculed them for going to the Lamanites. And so here we have Mormon just kind of describing this is how the Nephites view the Lamanites. And so assuredly, it was great. It says it was a great work which they had undertaken because this is all, look at this. This is all the cultural baggage that Ammon and all the people that went with him are dealing with, all of these views of the Lamanites. But what's interesting is because is that when they actually go and preach to them, and it says that Aaron and, and those with him had fallen among those with harder hearts, the ones with the really the hardest hearts weren't the Lamanites. He says it's the Amulonites and the Amalekites, which were Nephite defectors, right? And so it's it's they who are those that, that are the most difficult and contentious, not the Lamanites per se. So that is interesting how that, you know, this description of the Lamanites, I think you're right, doesn't exactly play out in the narrative in, in a collective way. There's certainly parts of them. And also this term Lamanites, I think at this point in the Book of Mormon and, and various others, becomes a very generic word that the Nephites use for anybody that's not them. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so like, even if they're not really actually descendants of Laman, like maybe they were just indigenous peoples that were there beforehand. I don't know necessarily but there seem to there seems to be just this generic term for lamanites because later when they talk about geography they're talking about lamanites oh there were some lamanites that lived in this and they were the more indolent people and then there were the lamanites that lived over here and they were all under different kings and then there was this one king who was kind of king over all of them and and so it seems to be sort of like almost a coalition you know whatever we want to beat up on the nephites we're going to get together and go do it but otherwise you know we are kind of there's some multicultural stuff going on here, even among the Lamanites, but the Nephites don't see it that way. Oh, they all, they're all the same to us, right? Right. <laughs> and here we have, <laughs> here we can see the implicit arrogance of the Nephites, notwithstanding them having the gospel, they still had a lot of baggage 
to deal with how they felt about the Lamanites. And, and we continue to see that here in the story. As they go, as Ammon and his brethren go, it doesn't tell us how long they traveled, but it does tell us that they went through quite a bit, a lot of trials and, and difficulties in getting there. And here we have in, um, in verse 9, that they might be an instrument in the hands of God to bring, if it were possible, their brethren the Lamanites to the knowledge of the truth, to the knowledge of the baseness of the traditions of their fathers, which were not correct. And it came to pass that the Lord did visit them with his spirit and said unto them, Be comforted. And they were comforted. This kind of goes back to our discussion of the context or the framework of the Beatitudes. Here, in order to go to the Lamanites, they're having to really empty themselves of all of these cultural prejudices, right? And they, we find out again in, in chapter 26 that that's all that's been laid on them and the mockery and everything. And they've really had to empty that in order to be able to love and serve these people. And then we come to the point where they're, they're basically having all of these trials and stuff and, and mourning because of the difficulty of the way and the spirit comes and comforts them. So I thought that was a nice little, you know, homage, so to speak to the, to the Beatitudes there as they're preparing to, to teach. And it seems to mirror in some ways the the preparations and trials and tribulations that Alma went through as he was preparing to go to Ammonihah. I see a lot of that with Ammon, and I think we're going to see a lot of Ammon growing in this as well, where he demonstrates how he interacts with God in different ways. I love how in verse 9 that you quoted where they talk about the traditions of their fathers, which were not correct. That was one of the points they wanted to do. They, when they weren't out to be missionaries— I don't know, were they sitting down and trying to figure out the points that they wanted to basically, like their goals, they were going out like, we want to talk about this, we want to talk about this, we want to talk about this. I don't know if that's what they were going through, if that's Mormon reading that into it. But if one of their goals was to to teach a knowledge of the baseness of the traditions of their fathers, these traditions are really, really set. It's really amazing how much tradition informs our opinion. Even today, even in our own countries, even in our own identities, tradition really does set our identity in about who and what we are and about how we view God. Tradition sets how we view ourselves. Tradition sets how we view the other. I mean, if we even look at the tradition of what it means to be an American or to be from a certain country or from a particular religion, to be from a particular race, that's all. those are all traditions. They all come down in those ways. So you can see that they are looking to go beyond the traditions that are there in really touching people and giving them the true identity as children of God. You know, every other identity, every other level of tradition, everything that we have in this life that gives us a group identity is all going to fail when we leave this life. The only thing that we're really assured of is that we keep our personal identity, whatever that is, and we're going to keep our families, families together in a unit, and that's the identity that comes with us. Otherwise, everything else is left behind. It's not going to matter in the eternities that I was a member of a particular group or that I was, you know, an Australian or if I was an Italian or an American. It doesn't matter. That kind of identity is going to go all the way of the earth. It's not going to matter what sports team I rooted for and what identity I had there. Those are things that might fill my time in this life, but that's not the identity that lasts. And so you can see them really cutting through to really solidify 
those eternal identities and what, what's really important. And to do that, you know, Ben and I, you were talking about, we were talking about the Old Testament and about how the Old Testament was written. And this, I think this is a really fascinating discussion when we come into Ammon and his, and his brother Aaron, when they start talking to the kings. But in the Old Testament, the, especially for the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, disregarding the book of Deuteronomy, because the Deuteronomy is written by someone else, but scholars have really found that the five books of Moses, as we have, or at least the first four books anyway, are really written from two different sources and from two different books of scripture, one that they think was held by the northern kingdom and one that they think was held by the southern kingdom. And over time, as they try to unify the kingdoms, they basically got shuffled together. And so to, to unify the two kingdoms together, because these documents, the, the, old, the old Testaments we have, or the, the four books of Moses as they had them, were really used as political documents. They were used as documents that solidified the identity of those particular people. And the Northern Kingdoms used them to solidify the identity and the authority of the Northern Kingdom. And the Southern Kingdom used their version to identify the kingdoms of the Southern Kingdom. And in old ancient Semitic cultures and in these old ancient cultures, to really establish political authority, your document or your, the history of your people and establishing authority started with a cosmology. It started with the creation of the earth story. It had to have that myth to it. And so that's why Genesis begins with the creation of the world. It's not necessarily a history to have a history. It's a history for the purpose of establishing authority and your identity that basically the world exists and you are the natural fulfillment of why the whole world was created. So for the Southern Kingdom, the entire reason the earth was created was to fulfill and to make sure that the southern kingdom existed. It was a very ethnocentric way of looking at life, and that's what the record was supposed to have. You know, Babylonians had it, Assyrians had it. We have records, and that's kind of like what the Epic of Gilgamesh is. Everything starts with a cosmology story about how the, the cosmos was created, and then a history from that, that creation happens all the way down into our time. And that's why our narrative is true, our history is true, because history started, the universe started, and then we happened. So that's why we're right. So when Ammon goes in, and we all know the story, and I guess we can spend time on the particulars of the story, but this is a very, very well-known story in our church. Ammon goes in, he's brought before, the, he's captured by some, some Lamanites, he's brought before King, uh, King Lamoni, and King Lamoni wonders what Ammon's doing here. Ammon basically says, well, I just, I'm, I'm, I want to dwell with you maybe for a time and perhaps until the day I die. And I guess this really intrigues Lamoni and Lamoni is like, well, I could kill you or you can marry one of my daughters. And, <laughs> and so at this point, Ammon, Ammon says, well, let me be a servant. So then we end up with the whole Ammon defending the king's flocks. The king is absolutely stunned when he hears about Ammon's power and Ammon comes in and starts talking to the king and the spirit gives him the ability of knowing the king's thoughts and intents and basically is able to talk with the king in opening up to being able to talk with him about the gospel. And of course, this is right when Ammon starts with basically the cosmology. Ammon starts talking to King Lamoni basically with the creation of the earth. And then he comes all the way forward into the time when Lehi left Jerusalem and then in Alma 18, verse uh, verse 37 and 38, 
It says, and he talked about all the journeys of their fathers in the wilderness and of all their sufferings and their hunger and their thirst and the travail and so forth. And he also rehearsed to them concerning the rebellions of Laman and Lemuel and the sons of Ishmael and all their rebellions did he relate unto them and he expounded unto them all the records and all the scriptures from the time that Lehi left Jerusalem down to the present time. Well, to start with the cosmology is to basically, in their culture, in that context coming out of Jerusalem, is to establish authority. This is very much the son of one king talking to another king about a new narrative, and we know that's happening there because of the cosmology, and it ends up pretty convincing. Yeah, it is interesting how he's trying to kind of rewrite the the cultural identity of the Lamanites here so that he can gain legitimacy in their eyes as someone who's speaking from an authoritative position. And what, what was interesting about the original assertion of them about wanting to go over to the Lamanites was that they needed to convince them of the incorrectness of the traditions of their fathers. And, um, you know, it's interesting. What, what specifically is a tradition that's incorrect? Well, in, in their eyes, it's these narratives, these stories about how Nephi and Laman, one is the good guy and one is the bad guy. And obviously it's Nephi's the good guy for the Nephites and Laman's the good guy for the Lamanites. And so trying to turn that narrative on its head to in order to establish some legitimacy of the Nephite culture. But it's not really clear to me why Ammon has to do this. You know, what what purpose does does that serve in um, helping the Lamanites come to know Christ? I'm not really sure what that is. But it, in any case, what it does is it does show that the Lamanites truly are humbling themselves. The fact that Lamoni is willing to do away with all of this cultural baggage in order to accept his Savior is sort of that that poor in spirit type of thing, right? I don't know why he has to accept the Nephite narrative in order to do that, but <laughs> um, that's that's how Ammon does it. And um, it's, it's effective either way, even if maybe there was a, a better way to do it. I really like how Ammon says here, though, that he says, Yea, I desire to dwell among this people for a time, yea, and perhaps until the day I die. And so here we have Ammon sort of implying that he actually is willing to give up his culture and accept the Lamanite way of life. And that intrigues Lamoni, that a, a Nephite would want to do that. And so the the show of genuine care and interest in another person is what opens that door. You know, uh, Lamoni, it, it's that, that sort of that couplet that uh, I'll repeat sometimes, people don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. You know, the persuasion of other people is almost, uh, true persuasion really comes about by love. When they know that you love them, they're really going to be persuaded and convinced by what you say. And so here it starts with Ammon's willingness to actually give up his identity to be part, his cultural identity to be part of the Lamanite culture so that he can come to know them and love them. And it makes a difference. Yeah, it really makes a difference. And I like that you brought up that we don't know why this is landing for the Lamanites necessarily, but that it is. And I think we can even draw parallels to our own lives that the Lord understands whatever culture and tradition 
and state of living that we are all in. That my upbringing with being in this particular country and with being with having this particular language and this particular religion and my particular race and everything else that goes into my identity, I've had one type of experience that is different from someone who may have lived 500 years ago. Heck, it's different than someone who lives down my street. And we all have such radically different narratives, but that the Lord is going to reach us all where we are at. I think that's the takeaway. That's what I'm taking away from this, that when I look at Lamoni, he's emptying the tradition. And maybe that was what was necessary. Maybe these traditions were even more ingrained than what our American traditions and identities are today. Maybe that was really, really hard to get rid of. And they thought that that was the key to doing it. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but it was successful. And God did touch them when they did finally strip away those narratives through that cosmology. Well, and I I like how the Lord works with that, right? That Ammon's willingness and humility and desire to really share the truth with these people, um, notwithstanding any mistakes or or uh, faults that he has, the Lord is able to take that. And because of humility and willingness of the people, he's then able to change their hearts. And maybe that's too transactional for you, Chilo. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It sounds I, I, good to me right now. <laughs> I, see, I see it as, you know, as it says in an earlier verse, the Lord is always there and willing to accept a people. It's simply a matter of us changing our perception and narrative in order to see him. And that's what I see here is, is that Ammon with his love is able to persuade these people to change their perception and narrative to understand who they really are, that they really are entitled to all of these blessings and they simply have to just start living them. And And that's what happens in the very moment that Lamoni exercises this desire and expresses it immediately, he receives that love. And it's so overwhelming to him that he can't even stand anymore, right? He just collapses. I've, I've, I've not seen something like this, but I can imagine it because I have felt something like this that was almost to the point of overpowering. I can I can imagine somebody feeling it to a greater degree and not being able to, you know, physically stand it. I look at here in verse 41 when Lamoni finally when Ammon is finally done talking and Lamoni stands forth, he says, and he began to cry unto the Lord saying, "O Lord, have mercy according to thy abundant mercy which thou hast had upon the people of Nephi, have upon me and my people." And maybe that way of that Ammon was talking to him about this was far more humble than what maybe certain predecessors had done before with asserting the Nephite narrative. That Ammon is seeking to give the cosmology and the authoritative not as a matter of domination or power, but as a means of showing how the Nephite narrative showed reconciliation with God. I mean, if, if we're going to go over the back through the Book of Mormon, after First and Second Nephi and Jacob— You know, we hit Enos, Jerem, and Omni, and all of a sudden we get like 300 years of history in like 10 pages, and it's nothing. It's not rich in any doctrinal anything, right? And they're like, yeah, nothing really happened. There were a few prophets came in. They, You know, there was hellfire and brimstone, and we had to do that because the people were wicked. But then nothing. 
And so if Ammon is really given a history of his people and goes through that same period of time where he's like, listen, Lamoni, we had some pretty good, we had some, you know, some rocky starts at the beginning. And then we hit this like 300 year dry spell. And, but God was merciful and we really didn't really add up to what we were supposed to be. But then let me tell you about King Benjamin. And if he's giving him that history, I can really see that Lamoni here, if his takeaway is to plead for mercy as he has heard Ammon talk about the mercy towards the Nephites, maybe that's the narrative. Maybe that's what Ammon's really giving out here, where Lamoni now has hope in a merciful God. Because in chapter 19, verse 6, once Lamoni collapses, and now Ammon, this is what Ammon desired, for he knew that King Lamoni was under the power of God. He knew that the dark veil of unbelief was being cast away from his mind. You know, that veil between us and the divine, that veil that separates us from the celestial heights, that veil which is both symbolically and physically is what keeps us from the unknown unknown, is our unbelief. I just think, you know, that veil of unbelief, that's all it is. And when Christ, I think it's one of the most tender moments in the New Testament when that father comes to ask Christ to heal his child. And Christ point, asks him, he says, if you believe, it will happen. And the father says, Lord, I believe, starting with the strength that he has, the, the ground, you know, like Elder Holland had said, he starts with the ground that he's already gained. But realizing perhaps the enormous hole of unbelief that exists in his soul, he pleads out, but help mine unbelief. And it's the prayer of the unbeliever for belief to be filled with something. And I find, no, this is the beatitude all over again, right? This is that I've been emptied. I'm standing here mourning. And now I don't know what to do. Please fill me with something. And the Lord fills us with righteousness. And so you see this here, that this dark veil of unbelief was being cast away. Like what Paul says, the scales from were dropping from his eyes. And I think in a lot of ways, like what you said, Ben, God is already everywhere. God is already in and through. That light of Christ is through all in and through all things. And I think in a lot of ways, we are already far more worthy than we already think we are. But that through our increasing our desire to act righteously for righteousness sake. And I think that really comes because of a love of God. Just as an aside, I was talking to my wife recently. Uh, when I was on my mission, I served my mission for only a couple months and I came back from medical, uh, medical and that was kind of the end of my, uh, my mission experience. But while I was out on my mission, we had, we were, I was told, now I had no way to verify this, we had more cars per capita than any other mission in the world and we had fewer accidents. And it was kind of one of those prideful things that uh, missionaries talk about. <laughs> I have no way of knowing if that's true or not, but that's the narrative we were told. Oh man, that's a solid statistic, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. I'm going to stick with it, though, because it verifies my story. <laughs> but uh, but one of the things that I asked was, why do we have fewer accidents and more cars? And I asked my trainer and I asked the, uh, the AP and the zone leader that I met and each on their own in their own area that, you know, we weren't together when I asked the question. I don't know why I asked the question, but I did. And the answer was the same. They all said, because we love president. And that was a weird answer for me at first until I met him. And this man just, he was a bit, he was a bit quirky. 
Um, there were, there were a few things that were just like, I just it was like this kind of interesting, but he just exuded love for the, for the sisters and the elders there. And I didn't know the man, but for a couple weeks, but I knew he loved me and I didn't wa- and it wasn't that I didn't want to let him down. It wasn't that there was an obligation because of it. For some reason, just the statement, I love president was sufficient that all things just came into order. And that has me thinking that when we just love God, everything just comes into order. Everything just is what it needs to be. That if we really spent our time focusing on the love of God and putting first things first, we wouldn't have to act out of duty. We don't have to act out of obligation. We don't have to act upon empty narratives or just getting through and, and, and making it, and was it faking it until we make it? It's just when we love God, everything else just happens. And I see that in a lot of ways what's being here is that when the light of the glory of God came upon Lamoni and he was touched by the love of God and the redemption of God, that's all it took. It was that that changed everything. You know, I like the imagery here of it being a veil because a veil is just something flimsy and thin but uh, it said it was a dark veil so it was it was very effective at blocking out the light but it wasn't that the light wasn't there you know just like you were saying the light was there the whole time and as soon as the veil was removed that light was able to shine so uh, I do like that imagery there I think it's described pretty well about what happened with uh, Lamoni and uh, I think that that's what can happen with us, um, as we've said before, it really just takes a moment for us to change. And what was that quote that I, I saw a while back? It's it's not the change that takes a long time. It's the all of the stuff that we have to do in order to want to change. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, so that was a, a bad quotation of it, but. Uh, <laughs> That's that's what it is, you know. Our our hearts can change instantly. The Lord can change our hearts right away. It's simply us being willing that is what is often will will be the holdup. You know, the verse right before uh, has always been kind of funny to me, just just because of the way that it's phrased with Lamona's wife saying that, uh, you know, everybody thinks he's dead. I don't think he's dead because they say he's stinking. But as for myself. To me, he doth not stink, and well, that that is just such a sweet, uh, you know, phrase of of the devotion of love of a wife to her husband. <laughs> what what greater <laughs> testimony of love can we receive in the entire Book of Mormon than this one of Lamoni's wife? Um, <laughs> So Some I, people I, think he I stings like he's been dead for four days. I can't tell the difference. <laughs> I can't tell the difference. <laughs> he always smells like this. I don't know what you guys are talking about. Yeah, I. It's Lamo, those two things with Lamoni when he like walks in and Alma and not Alma, but Ammon is like, "Hey, I just want to be here for the rest of my life and be your servant." And Lamoni is like, "Well, I was going to kill you, but hey, what do you want to marry my daughter?" There's that <laughs> yeah. story and this one. It's just. It's like, yeah, he, he, they think he smells like rotting flesh for several days, but I can't tell a difference. 
<laughs> yeah, I such quite a devotion. It that way, that's an even funnier way of doing it. But uh, <laughs> uh, any case, we have we have this uh, story that progresses here with with then Lamoni's wife experiencing um, all of these things as well in her own way, um, and then we come across Abish, which. Everybody wants to know more about Abish, right? I do. But we just don't know more know. about Abish. But uh, I I love this here. It says, so everybody had fallen to the earth. In verse 16, save it were one of the Lamanitish women whose name was Abish. She having been converted unto the Lord for many years on account of a remarkable vision of her father. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here in just this little bit. All right, Mormon, um, I know that it's hard to write on the plates, but you could at least give us a little bit more of that yeah, story. Yeah, yeah, how come we didn't get more of the Abish story and we got like all of the aunties and <laughs> of silver and stuff? And right? why why do we only get like four verses of like Zion in 4th Nephi? We get an entire Book of Mormon about people who are wicked and who are just keep on messing it up. And we only get like 10 verses about, anyway. Yeah, I have some things to talk to Mormon about. It's in the seal portion. <laughs> Shiloh. It, it we better have to appreciate be. what we have. It better be because I want to know more about Abish and I want to know more about the people of Zion and Fourth Nephi. That's I'm, I'm yeah. two beefs with. In more. any case, yeah, Abish, uh, a very interesting character here, and the fact that her father had had a remarkable vision and been converted unto the Lord. It says for many years. So already, the Lord had been preparing these people, and it wasn't that. They just couldn't receive the gospel because, you know, the Nephites hadn't gone over there yet. You know, those that really did have the desire were already receiving this, right? They were already experiencing it. Abish already, she immediately knew what was going on. She, cause she'd already experienced this herself. And it says in verse 17, I thought this was interesting. You know, this, this moment gave her the courage that, she needed to to really or maybe she had the courage but it really kind of sparked that in her right it says she had never never having made it known therefore when she saw that all the servants of Lamoni had fallen to the earth and also her mistress the queen and the king and and ammon lay prostrate upon the earth and she knew that it was the power of god and supposing that this opportunity by making known unto the people what had happened that by beholding this scene, it would cause them to believe in the power of God. Therefore, she ran forth from house to house, making it known unto the people. So now she's she's ready, right? She's uh, she hadn't told anybody before, but now she this is her moment in order to really try to share what her experience has been by seeing other people having the experience. She now wants everybody else to experience that as well. So uh, yeah, Abish is uh, would probably be an even more interesting character if we knew more about her. But I like her example here in, in the courage that she had. And in how she ended up delivering them when, when everybody came and thought that, uh, that Nephi had cursed everybody. She really is just a fascinating character. I love, I love her place here and I really, really want to know more about her and in that whole situation. But uh, as I said, I'll take it up with Mormon when I see him next. <laughs> so um i'm interested to hear your thoughts if you have any on um this this narrative here that we have our description of the guy just falling dead when he's gonna go slay ammon what's going on here do we have another uh lightning bolt god shallow 
You know, yeah, this is a fa- this is fascinating. I have not yet uh, really made sense out of this. I was reading it through this time through, and and I keep notes over on the side of like this story has not been resolved yet, <laughs> and so <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I've got dozens of those, right? And and so I do. I study nonviolence, and I and I and I believe it, and I and I follow it. But the uh, yeah, there's a lot of stories that come into the into the Book of Mormon, and it's a it's an amazing journey to really look at a kind, loving, benevolent father and not making any try to justifications around that. And then to come across stories like this. And it's sometimes it causes consternation. And sometimes like with this, it's just like, huh, that's a really interesting, uh, that's a really interesting story. I wonder what that happened with there. Because when you have men and women who are just doing their best and, you know, like Ammon, killing all the people and chopping off their arms. Then he comes in, he has like the spirit of prophecy and all these things. Yeah. From a nonviolent perspective, you're like, huh, this is kind of interesting. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to wrestle and, 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 and grapple with this for a little while. And I've, I have found that my relationship to God through this kind of discovery, that coming to the book of Mormon, because I very, very much believe that the book of Mormon is a treatise of nonviolence. I believe that the message of the book of Mormon has the it's it is apex is the sermon on the mount or rather the sermon at the temple that happens in third nephi and that everything is a build-up to that and so when i when i take that as kind of the foundational premise and i go back through the rest of the book of mormon yeah you do end up with stories like this you know everybody wants to talk about nephi killing laban and we want to talk about um Ammon and this and then this and the and cutting off everybody's arms and killing people and the stripling warriors and Captain Moroni. Those are like the four biggest ones that people want to talk about. And they're great discussions and we will. But for this guy, yeah, I'm uh I, I read it through this time <laughs> and I was like, yeah, he was uh he was there with the waters of his uh what was his brother? Was it the water of Sebus and scattered the sheep yeah. and he wanted to defend his brother and come along and yeah, it's 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 going to be really fascinating to have all of these things revealed and explained in further detail because there's a lot of evidence in the Book of Mormon that really shows Mormon's bias as he's writing this. You know, Mormon wasn't a perfect man. Joseph Smith said that the Book of Mormon was the most correct book of any other and that a man would draw nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than any other. But nowhere does it say it was a perfect book. Nowhere does it say it was a perfect translation. Nowhere does it say that there weren't biases that were put into it. Nor does it say that it is absolutely flawless, but that it is the most correct book. And there are a lot of times where I see Mormon's interjection, and I think there's a lot of evidence, and it's it's kind of getting ahead. And, and I'd like to talk about it, you know, weeks from now when we get into the rest of uh, Mormon. But there's a lot of evidence, I think, that Mormon started to change his opinion about a lot of things as he actually compiled the Book of Mormon. I don't know if this was an endeavor that he just sat down to do at the end of his life once he had all these things figured out and he just decided, hey, you know, I've got six months until the next war and I'm just going to do this. Or if this was a process through his entire life and if we see that kind of transition. And I think there's a lot of evidence that we do. And and so the, the, the overarching narrative here, though, is I see one of the study of Christ and who and what Christ is and who and Christ's and not just Jesus Christ but that the only begotten son came to earth and made himself flesh and exampled for us the way that all human beings should be and the way that we should live. In fact, he tells us this in 3 Nephi 27, 27, verily what manner of men ought ye to be? Verily I say unto you, even as I am. So who Christ is, 
who Jesus was and who Jesus Christ is, and we covenant to take upon ourselves the name Christ, so that means that we follow Christ and will everything that Christ is, and it's my belief that Christ constitutes the pure essence of what our humanity is, that it really is the example of what it means to be human. Everything else is a facade. And so the Book of Mormon is another testament of Jesus Christ. It's it's another testimony of that overarching theme. So anyway, that was a much longer explanation to a uh, a non-explanation. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, I absolutely love that. And when it gets in here into uh, the Queen's response where she says, Oh, blessed Jesus. This is after Abish goes and wakes her up. And she wakes up and she sees the crowd. Oh, blessed Jesus, who has saved me from an awful hell. Oh, blessed God, have mercy on this people. You know, I, I'm coming to a place where I believe now that hell is a place reserved for those people who think they belong. And I think I've talked about it before, but I'm believing more and more in an empty heaven where people who are in that celestial rest aren't just going to sit there on their laurels and on the, on everything and all the blessings that they got while they were on earth for, you know, anywhere between for 80 years, 80, 90 years out of eternity, but that we are proactively engaged in the work and glory of all of God's children and when it says, oh, blessed Jesus, who has saved me from an awful hell, Latter-day Saints, we don't have a version of hell like a lot of people in, in you know Christendom do, especially since we've taken the concept of hell largely from Dante um, in the last couple of hundred, you know, several hundred years. But this hell is reserved for those people who think they belong, that people who would rather have the mountains fall on them than actually come to a reconciliation of, with Christ. And... She's saying that she has been redeemed from that, that those scales have fallen from her eyes. Oh, blessed God, have mercy on this people, that they might too might experience this same kind of repentance. And we, we defined repentance uh, last week from the Bible Dictionary, seeing God clearly and seeing ourselves more clearly and therefore seeing each other more clearly. That's repentance. So you can see that's exactly what she's going through. Well, in hell in this context is what we experience before we repent. Um, hell is the perception that we have before we repent to see things the way that God sees them. So um, it's, uh, it's it could be very much a temporal experience. You know, even when we get later to Alma's experience of his repentance, right? He's going through all this torment and anguish and everything. And then all of a sudden he's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm I'm going to turn to Christ and in the very moment that he does he's delivered from that right and it wasn't that he had to go through all of that it was simply that as soon as he was able to turn his perception and look to Christ that could all go away at least his perception of it could go away he was didn't have he wasn't experiencing that anymore uh so that's you know, it seems to be what the King Lamoni's wife's experience was, that she was sort of tormented by all of this. But as soon as she decided to change, and as soon as she decided to repent, change her perception of God and who she was, then that was no longer her reality. You know, she didn't have to live in that reality anymore. Going back to what you were saying about Mormon, it's interesting because I would say Evidence or not, there, there, there may be ample evidence in the Book of Mormon. Evidence or not, it would be, I think it would be unreasonable to think that Mormon didn't change his ideas as he's uh, going through and abridging the Book of Mormon. Because 
you know, you can't go through all of that and and read all of that and try to synthesize all of it without it affecting your ideas and worldviews. So, like I said, you know, we, we can go and find evidences for it, but I think it would be axiomatic to say that, you know, that he's changed as he's uh, bridging this record, his ideas and perceptions of, of the way things are. So, yeah, that's a good point. Mormon is a fascinating, just a fascinating guy. And, and as I said, I, I really do want to meet him. My beef with him, nonetheless. <laughs> no, nonetheless. But when, as, we, uh, as we keep on going on through the chapters here, we see that Lamona and his wife are converted. Their people are converted. The Lord comes to Ammon and talks to Ammon saying, hey, we need to go over to Madonai to be able to release your brethren from prison. They've fallen on about a harder people. And Lamoni misses the, the feast that his own father, the king of the, all the Lamanites, was giving to his sons. And so as they start traveling out to go release Ammon's brethren from Madonai, they end up coming into contact with Lamoni's father. And we know this doesn't go very well. Uh, Lamoni's father is really upset with Lamoni for missing the feast and questions in chapter 20, verse 10, whither art thou going with this Nephite who is one of the children of a liar? One of the children of a liar, not of liars, Mm -hmm. of a liar. And then he says again down here in um, verse 13, and now when Lamoni had rehearsed unto him all the things, behold, to his astonishment, his father was angry with him and said, Lamoni, thou art going to deliver these Nephites who are sons of a liar. Again, we're talking about a liar. So I I think this is Nephi. I think he's talking about Nephi, the, the son of a liar. So why is Nephi a liar? Well, in verse 13, it goes on. For he, this liar has robbed our fathers, and now his children are also come amongst us, that they, that they may, by their cunning and their lyings, deceive us, that they again may rob us of our property. Well, what property? Because the Lamanites seized the first land of inheritance that they came when they arrived here to the Americas at the beginning. And then when Nephi left in Second Nephi chapter 4, is it chapter 4 or 5, um, they ended up confiscating that land too. And so then they left a second time and they ended up in Zarahemla where the people of Mulek had already built the land of Zarahemla. So what property? And so I'm thinking this, as far as we know or have may have evidence for or ideas for, this may end up being either the plates or it's the sword of Laban. Now, I don't see the, the plates ever coming up into an argument and I don't see the sword either. But I really do think the main anger there for property may be the sword. You know, that was the thing that Nephi used to fashion to make other swords. The sword of Laban is a very prolific symbol throughout the entire Book of Mormon. And in fact, Mormon buries the sword of Laban in the chest that Joseph Smith ends up pulling out. So it's a very symbolic, it's a very symbolic element of the Book of Mormon narrative. And it's one that I'm loosely researching, hopefully to write an article about it, but I think that sword that usually establishes authority may be what um, they're most upset about. You know, I I once went through the Book of Mormon and highlighted all the parts that tied the sword to the plates because this idea or this mythology of this sword of Laban does seem to persist throughout uh, the Nephite culture. And so understanding how that all fit in would, would be interesting um, you know, another question that Mormon could have explained a little better, potentially. But, uh, you know, he, he says children of a liar. So remember that not only did Nephi leave his brethren and go settle in another land, 
which then they called the land of Nephi. But then Mosiah I left that land and went and to live in Zarahemla. And so, you know, Laman had the first, Laman and Lamuel took over sort of the land where they first landed, but then they took over also the land of Nephi, where Nephi went to. Um, and this is what you were saying. And Mosiah leaves. And so, yeah, there, there does seem to be some, some expansion by the Lamanites here. But again, it, part of this might be answered by the fact that there, there wasn't necessarily one Lamanite nation, so to speak. Right. The Nephites seem to uh, give this narrative that way that, you know, it's them and the Lamanites and it's just us and them. But the the Lamanites were told several times that they war amongst each other. And so we've got different kingdoms and and um, groups or tribes or whatever it is that that are among the Lamanites that are that are pitted against each other as well. Lamoni's father kind of seems to be the. The king over the whole land, or at least a big part of them. Um, maybe that was brought about by conquest. Not sure exactly how this came about. But this this question of the sword being the authority, you know, there's also the Liahona. Now, the Liahona was explicitly given to Lehi. And when Nephi leaves his brothers, he takes the Liahona with him in addition to the sword and the plates. And then we suppose there's some sort of apocryphal reference to this that we don't necessarily get into, but we suppose that Mosiah the first also did that. Um, he would have because the Nephites had the Liahona with them. So you know, there, there's several pieces of property here. We've got the brass plates, we've got the sword, we've got the Liahona. All of those could kind of count in it because those at some point belonged to Lehi or were claimed by Lehi at least the plates and the Liahona. And so those would have been passed down to his eldest son, right? And so here we have, again, the claim that they've stolen their property. I don't know what uh, what fear they have of the Nephites coming among them now, what property they're, they're thinking to steal. But obviously they're, they're living, the Lamanites are living under this narrative that the Nephites are just a bunch of uh, thieves and, and uh, liars and there's reason for this, right? It's not an unreasonable assumption to live under based on the reality of their existence here in the land. And how Ammon deals with this is is kind of interesting and, and not necessarily how I would recommend dealing with it. But uh, he does do some, some things that uh, help Lamoni's father realize what, what the truth is here. And the way that Ammon is able to persuade Lamoni's father of his mission, that he's really there out of love, and he's really there not to rob them or lie to them or manipulate them, but he's really there to share something important with them. Here he says, when he saw that Ammon had no desire to destroy him, and when he also saw the great love he had for his son Lamoni, he was astonished exceedingly. And again, this goes back to somebody not really caring how much you know till they know how much you care type of thing. Now, all of a sudden, Lamoni's father wants to know what's going on. Why is Ammon really here? If he's not come to do these things that my narrative tells me he's here to do, what is he here to do? It opens him up to listen, to humbles, humbles him a little bit and is able to listen. 
I wouldn't personally condone the way that Ammon went about humiliating the king, but um, but I but ultimately Ammon's desire was not to hurt him or kill him, but to persuade him of the truth of his message. Yeah, you know we learn in Jacob and and Enos that the Nephites had way back when had sent in missionaries into the yeah. Lamanites, but that it was unsuccessful. And then we just kind of leave it and then there's wars and these narratives against each other. And I've often wondered what kind of missionaries were sent in and who was preparing themselves? How did they prepare themselves? How, what message was, was brought? And when we see Ammon going in and Ammon taking this message of being a servant to them and cause, cause in Ammon's own land, he's a prince. He's the son of the king. He is the heir of the throne. And when he comes here, now he is the servant of the son of the king, you know, kind of a tribal king, as it were, probably over his own little, his own little tribal area. And we see that this kind of humility and it really tosses on its head the Lamanite narrative for the Nephites because of the the subservient nature of Ammon and being the servant there with them. And this leads into a broader context because now that Ammon doesn't want to kill Lamoni's father. Lamoni's father decrees that uh, his brethren should be let out of the jail. And so Aaron and Molokai go, and we get some of their story now in chapter 21 and 22. They didn't fall upon some good people. In fact, they ended up running into the Nehors again. So this is, I think, is one of those evidences that we find out that somehow running concurrent with Alma at least we know that Nehor, who was over in the Nephite land, had somehow gotten in touch with the people over here in the Lamanite land, with the uh, Amalekites and the Amulonites, and that they had converted to the way of Nehor. Because it said that, that these synagogues that they built from with the Amalekites were after the order of Nehor. So now we begin to see, yeah, now there's this, uh, these crossovers from what's going on over in Zarahemla versus what's going on here. And among the people of Nehor, they don't have any luck, but yet they're there. Yet they're allowed to be there. Yet they're preaching in the synagogue. They're not being killed outright. And that's what kind of stood out to me this time was that the narrative was they were bloodthirsty and they wanted to kill at any, basically gives the idea that at a drop of a hat, we're going to kill any Nephite that we see. And that's just not what's going on here in any of these stories. And, and so we see them going through. They're not treated very well. They're thrown into prison. They're, they're, it's just absolute depravity. Aaron end, uh, is ended up delivered by Ammon in, uh, in 21. And by 22, you have Aaron going before Lamoni's father, the king of all the land. And just like with Ammon to Lamoni, Aaron also begins with the cosmology. He begins with the whole creation of Adam. <laughs> he reads all the scriptures about how God created man in his own image and how God gave him commandments and all the creation of Adam and everything from the fall down to their day. And then one of my favorite verses is here where after Aaron has expounded all of these things, the king asked, what shall I do that I may be born of God, having this wicked spirit rooted out of my breast and receiving his spirit that I might be filled with joy that I not be cast off at the last day? Behold, said he, I will give up all that I possess. I will forsake my kingdom that I may receive this great joy. 
But Aaron said unto him, If thou desirest this thing, if thou wilt bow down before God, yea, if thou wilt repent of all thy sins, and wilt bow down before God, and call upon his name in faith, believing that he shall receive, then shalt thou receive the hope which thou desirest. And it came to pass that when Aaron had said these words, the king did bow down before the Lord upon his knees, yea, even he did prostrate himself upon the earth and cried mightily, saying, O God, Aaron hath told me that there is a God, and if there is a God, and if thou art God, wilt thou make thyself known unto me? And I will give away all of my sins to know thee, that I might be raised from the dead and be saved to the last day. What a beautiful prayer. God, if you're there, if you're even a thing, if I'm praying to anyone, I'll give away everything that I am. Now, I used to I used to look at this when I was younger and think, man, what, an, what a sweet trade. You simply give away your sins to know God. <laughs> God, that's the payment. But then as I look about it as, as, as an adult and I realize to give away all of my sins is literally to give up the natural man. It's to give up all temporal identities that don't last into the eternities. It's to be poor in spirit. It's to give up all of what we think we know we know and to enter into the realm of the unknown unknown with God and to let him be filled and let him fill us with that joy and hope. It's literally the most painful thing we might ever do to give up all of our sin because it means we have to give up all of our identity too. I've always thought it was interesting how Lamoni's father here in this context after he's heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and knows that's what he wants you know he he hungers and thirsts after righteousness here you can see it right that he's willing to give anything for this food this spiritual food he's hungering and thirsting to be filled that he says he'll give up he'll forsake his kingdom to have this joy and just a chapter before or a couple chapters before when he's threatened with his life by Ammon, he bargains with Ammon and says, I'll give up half of my kingdom <laughs> if you'll spare my life. Right. As if the other half would do him any good. If he died. <laughs> <laughs> In any case, you know, he's threatened with death. He's willing to give up half of his kingdom. But now that he has felt the love of God, and really wants to partake in the kingdom of God, he's willing to give up his entire kingdom for that kingdom. He's willing to give up his entire identity for that identity. And this is the power that the love of Christ has over someone versus what happened with Ammon threatening with his life, right? Here we see this sort of contrast between these experiences of the same person being threatened with violence versus feeling the love of God and how he reacts to that, right? And ultimately, this is how all of the people that sort of join in this movement feel because they're will, they give up everything. They give up all of their desires for violence and revenge and a domination over other people. They bury their weapons and they become what is described by Mormon uh, and other prophets as well later in the book 
as one of the most righteous people and so full of love more than any other people that had ever been, ever existed, because they were willing to really empty themselves completely, not hold on to that little bit left. Yeah, it was a complete letting go. You know, I, I find that more than just sacrifice and suffering, that the Lord is far more desirous of us to surrender. That the natural man letting go, or let us letting go of the natural man, is the hardest thing we'll do. Because that is where all of our justifications are. That's where all of our superiority is. That is where all of our being right is. That's when all of our claim about being over other people rests. That's where all of our views about ourselves, their healthy and unhealthy, rest. And when we let go of all of that temporal ego and all of that temporal identity, everything that's constructed by this world, everything that's in that dualistic, fallen worldview, that's hard. Um, and the thing is, is I don't think it has to be. <laughs> I just think, I just think it, it is, it's, it's change happens immediately, but it's the reason it, that's, that's the quote change happens immediately, but it's the resistance to change yeah, that can take a lifetime. That's, it. that's the yeah. quote. Okay. That's what we talked about at yeah. beginning. Yeah. And here we see with these men and women, um, wow, just, it did happen immediate. It take a, it had, they needed to be prepared for their lifetime, but when change came, Change didn't need to take a month or, you know, two months or three months or a quarter or a year or a decade. It happened immediately. And that's all it needed. And wow, just what an incredible story. What an incredible story. And how I love how this is going to springboard, springboard into next week's discussion mm-hmm. is that we are literally witnessing what it means to live a beatitude life. And I think, I think, you know, to talk maybe a little bit more next week about the Beatitudes and about how that leads up to being a peacemaker, um, showing how these people are following that path and how the Beatitudes are really showing us what kind of people the anti-Nephi-Lehi's end up becoming and give a little bit more context to why their suffering happened a particular way and why their course ended up leading them into Jershon. So that'll be a, that'll be a great discussion. Yeah. I mean, I I think we're going to see one of the most detailed descriptions of the process that this people goes through in establishing Zion. You know, we have examples of Zion other places in the scripture, but the scriptures, but this is, this is a more detailed um, uh, description of sort of events and feelings and experiences that these people have as they are establishing Zion among themselves. You know, uh, so this chapter 22, towards the end of chapter 22, uh, Mormon starts to tell us about this thing, this um, proclamation that's sent throughout all the land. And then he gets off on this super long tangent, one of the longest tangents Mormon ever takes, uh, about geography. Yes. And um, uh, I'm not sure, you know, again... (laughs) I'm not sure how useful the geography is here. You know, I really would have preferred more Abish story, but but we have it. We have some of this geography, which uh, a lot of people have tried to make sense of. And um, 
there's not a whole lot of sense to be made of it in a um, uh, consensus way, right? Like there's a lot of differing views about how this geography of the Book of Mormon really plays out, how it might fit in with actual observable geography we have now. I don't think we really want to get into that. Um, no, I'm not touching because... that one at all. <laughs> it's, not... it's like I, um, I I I like studying both the whole Mesoamerica and the whole uh-huh. and the whole Heartland theory of the Book yeah. of Mormon. I think they're fun to research. I like listening to both sides. I like hearing them present the evidence because it gets exciting. But I have absolutely no opinion that would ever <laughs> bring me to a place to try to argue one or the other. I just think it's fun to listen to. Yeah, and and I may have an uh, you know I have an inclination towards the Mesoamerican model, but it doesn't like, doesn't really bother me uh, uh, for someone to necessarily bring up something that's uh, more interesting about the Heartland model that it says, Oh, that, you know, that would make sense too. But, uh, and it, and it could be perfectly all well and good that, that neither one really describes what's going on. <laughs> and it um, happened in Washington state <laughs> whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> Whatever, uh, it's it's a fun uh, hobby uh, yes. to to look at that. Uh, but I don't, yeah, I don't have very strong uh, as strong opinions about it as I have before. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I I know JC had uh, some opinions on it, and I and we had a discussion about it uh, before, and he went to a lot of things and. And actually, after having discussed a lot of his opinions, um, it, it, it solidified mine even more. <laughs> but uh, uh, anyway, yeah, for the listeners, that, that's who all might, I want to say about geography. <laughs> for the listeners who might be interested, we have a, a dear friend, J.C. Ballers, who had started LDS Liberty, where Ben and I originally podcasted from, and he passed away several years ago from cancer. But he was a very staunch Heartland model supporter. And he had a lot of presentations that he gave um, trying to defend that position. And I, I absolutely loved listening to him. I might be more preferential to the Heartland model just because of JC, um, but just because of JC, not because of the validity of the <laughs> argument. <laughs> so he was a very sense. dear friend. He's very missed. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's fun. When I read When I read through the geography here, I was like, huh, I wonder what JC would have thought about that. And uh, he did. He read a lot of it. He was kind of a savant when it came to geography, and that was really cool. But very cool. I'm excited for the discussion next week. Yeah, um, these are some of some of the best chapters in the Book of Mormon, like all of them. But but uh, I, I don't know. I didn't check. Does this? Do we get to chapter twenty six? No. Next time. Uh, yeah. I no. Think we, you know, I think we do get to chapter twenty six. Okay. I don't. I don't know. I haven't looked yet. Great. Chapter twenty six is awesome. This is <sighs> you know Ammon's discussion about what his uh, experience and how he's learned and how he's grown through all of this, and then he gets into it, and it's it's quite a testimony. Yeah. I'll have, to, I'll have to prepare myself emotionally for that. That gets emotional for me. So, well, cool. Well, until next time, I'm Shiloh Logan. I'm Ben Peterson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>